0: So, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And here's what the Word says. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Amen. I want to talk tonight about a door open in heaven. Ain't the greatest thing to know is that you sat under an open heaven. Amen. Heaven is not shut, right? When we are living a life that is obediently surrendered to our God, we have a door open. And a, and a voice saying, come up, right? <laughs> Amen. He said, and the first voice that I heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. So we're going to talk tonight. The title of this message is A Door Open in Heaven. So we're just going to go through these notes, go through these scriptures As we've been doing on Wednesdays, I want to open you guys if you have a question, raise your hand. There's definitely, definitely going to be questions I think stirred from this teaching tonight, so feel your freedom to ask those questions. I may not have the answer because I'm in a little shift of of, uh, eschatology uh, changes myself, so I may not have all those answers, but I will do the best that I can. So here's some questions we're going to answer and kind of discuss tonight. Number one, is the church mentioned anymore in Revelation after this verse? A lot of people, and we'll, and we'll break all this stuff down in just a minute. How many know that Jesus is coming back? Amen. And I think regardless of how you view the end times, we all believe Jesus is coming back. And so it is okay to have difference in opinions of how that looks. It's okay, right? You're not going to go to hell because you're pre-trip, mid-trip, post-trip, past-trip, whatever trip, right? It doesn't matter. We just know Jesus is coming, right? And so that is something that can be agreed upon across the board as the body of Christ. And so we can discuss differences. We can celebrate differences. We can worship together because at the end of the day, we believe Jesus died and he rose again. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is coming back. Amen. So uh, we're going to discuss that. Number two, does the verse represent the rapture of the church? Number three, where do we come up with a seven-year tribulation period? And number four, how do preterists and futures view biblical prophecies such as the Antichrist and and also in regards to evangelism and missions? A preterist view, a partial preterist view is kind of what the flip I'm going to talk about is seeing the book of Revelation as a part of it already being fulfilled. And then the futurist believes that everything from Revelation 4 one on throughout the book of Revelation is something that would be fulfilled later down the road. And so we're going to discuss that. I'm going to discuss both views, going to break it down both ways. And then that way you can look at it and say and, and use your judgment. Because, you know, I grew up believing a pre-trib rapture view my entire life. And if some of y'all don't know what that is, that's okay. I'll break all that down in just a minute. I, I, I studied it. I would go, and i told you guys this before, I'd go home from school. And I was big into eschatology. Does anybody enjoy studying biblical prophecy? Amen, I and some guys, some of you guys may, I believe the reason why that is in certain people is because there's a prophetic anointing on your life. Amen. I whether you realize it or not, I believe that desire is there and that passion is there to learn and know because, because that gift is in you. Right. And so, and, and to understand, and there's this part of me that says, I've got to study until I get an answer. And that's how I'm wired. And so, you know, I would spend hours upon hours at a date Bible and that's why we believed. I had that commentary growing up. I was given that when I was eight years old. So having that growing up in Perry Stone, that's really just where my view was the whole time. But then I got opened and I began to ask some questions in myself, and I began to really get started about well, there's some things that I be- that I just began to ask it. And it's like you know what, this don't make sense to me. And then when I began to study other views, I say, okay, well, I can see I can see both ways, or I can see this being better than the other. And so, you know, so I want to challenge you guys as well as encourage you guys, keep an open mind when going into the book of Revelation. Keep an open mind. Be willing to listen to different perspectives. Be willing to study different things because the Bible says study to show yourself approved and you can't defend what you believe if you don't know the way other people believe it. Right? You can't defend yourself. You can't go and talk to a Muslim if you don't know what Muslims believe. Right. You can't talk to people of other beliefs and and be able to effectively defend your faith if you don't know what they what they believe. Right. And so we're going to detail some stuff and go over some things. But I do want to go back before we get into this verse here and kind of go back a little bit and correct some things. First of all, a lot of commentaries, a lot of what's public teach that um, that the book of Revelation was written in between 81 and 96 A.D., which would be in the reign of the emperor Domitian. Now, the fact of the matter is the whole Predator's view of Revelation is thrown out the door based on the time period of when Revelation was written. But after studying a little deeper, I have found both, I have found various church fathers that have said two different views. And that's why a lot come on and say, okay, now I've got to look at this a little bit deeper. And so uh, uh, though a lot of commentaries will will go lean on the early church father um, Irenaeus, and um, he was around in 180 A.D. He was also a disciple of Polycarp. He stated that when John said these things, that he was on the Isle of Patmos, condemned by Caesar Domitian, and then he saw the apocalypse and the link and and the, and well, actually that was Victorinus as well in the third century that he also saw quoted as saying that that Domitian, that John was banished on the Isle Isle of Patmos and wrote the book of Revelation during that time. But there was also some other recordings that says otherwise that disagrees. According to a most ancient version of the New Testament called the Syriac, it was written in the 2nd century, it was actually called the Peshito, which said the revelation which was made by God to John the Evangelist in the Isle of Patmos, into which he was shown by Nero Caesar on the apocalypse, and so on uh, the commentary on the apocalypse, and so that was one recording. We also know that uh, and, and the emperor and the C, uh, Nero excuse me, ruled the Roman Empire from eight, uh, from 54 to 68 AD, and we'll talk a lot about Nero later down the road, but anyway, because there's a lot to really learn about that, and a lot of this stuff, again, if you've had a pre-trib rapture view, there's going to be a lot of things I say in the upcoming weeks that's going to be completely new to you. But anyway, uh, Tertullian, who was also um, an early church father in history, uh, he lived between 155 and 220 AD. He also wrote that John was boiled in oil during Nero's reign and then sent to the Isle of Patmos. Jerome had noted in his writings that John was seen in AD 96, which was when a lot of people believed he wrote the book of Revelation, but that he was so old and feeble that he was with difficulty carried to the church and could only speak a few words to people. In Revelation 10:11, John prophesied against many people, nation, tongues, and kings. How could he do this if he wrote this in AD 96 when he was an elderly and in a when he was elderly and in a weakened condition? And so when you begin to study that and read that, you see a conflict of views from early church fathers. Some say it was written during Domitian's time, some say during Nero's time. And so with that being said. When you look at two totally different time periods, all of a sudden, because if you say, well, he wrote this uh, somewhere between 54 to 68 A.D., and then the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was 70 A.D., which was two years later, then you have to flip back and say, wait just a minute. Maybe there's quite a bit of this that's been fulfilled, or maybe there's a dual fulfillment of prophecy. Maybe it was fulfilled in that time, and maybe we'll see some variation of it fulfilled again in the future. And so it's important that we keep an open mind. And I said that to say we really aren't sure when John wrote it. And so it's very important that we keep an open mind when digging into this stuff and begin to study and learn and just see what we can grow and how we can learn. So in Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. So I wanted to lay that as a backdrop into the book of Revelation being written. Now Revelation 4, one again talks about John being caught up to heaven and seeing these things. I believe he was caught up in the Spirit. Just as Paul was caught up, the Bible says, in the third heaven and began to receive revelation from God, I also believe John was caught up in a similar way to to receive revelation of what the Bible says in verse or chapter 4 verse 1 of what was coming thereafter, right? I believe we need to take the Word of God as it is, and not add to it, right? I don't believe we need to make a biblical prophecy and say, well, because it says this and he's a representation of the church because the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible, as a matter of fact, doesn't give any indication that Jack Van Impey was one of the main people in eschatology, eschatology that was stating, well, the church is no longer mentioned after this verse, and I have preached that. As a matter of fact, I have taught that when I have have that view of a pre-trib rapture view but then as I began to dig a little deeper all of a sudden that thing that idea began to change because even though the literal word church is not mentioned after that verse as a matter of fact the church is not literally mentioned in that verse but uh, after chapters two and three the literal, literal word church is no longer mentioned but let me point out make some points here We see in in Scripture, after chapter 4, about the 24 elders. We've taught, and and when you study, you will learn and find out that the 24 elders, as mentioned in the book of Revelation, represented the 12 tribes of Israel, as well as the 12 disciples of Christ, and Jesus being in the center, bridging the Old and the New Covenant, because as Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law, but I came to fulfill it right? And so if you look at those 12 of those 24 elders, were they not part of the church, right? You also read in, in throughout the scriptures also about the saints, right? You also read about a, a number being martyred for the gospel. How can they be martyred and not be part of the church? How can someone be martyred for the gospel and for the cause of Christ and the hope they believe and not be part of the church, as Revelation chapter uh, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, verse 14, and Revelation 3 detail. Finally, you have the saints in the book of Revelation, both on earth and in heaven, various verse references there that you've got in your notes. And so the saints are people who are holy, being set apart for a specific purpose. That's what the word saint means. It means to be holy. It means to be a set-apart people for God. What is the church? It's in the Greek ecclesia, which means called out and separated right and so if you have saints on earth and in heaven that is mentioned in the scripture are they not mentioned are they not part of the church and are they not mentioned later in the book of revelation so because we hear that said does not mean that it is true so i'm here to tell you the church is absolutely mentioned throughout the book of revelation it has to be right because I don't think a number being martyred of the blood of the saints, right? And, and that, that number being before God, I, I think it does them an injustice to say, well, they wasn't raptured and they're not part of the church, right? Does that not do them an injustice? Amen? So some thoughts to think about, right? But anyway, so what is the rapture? First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. Regardless of what you view, There is a catching away of the church that you read about in Scripture, right? The question is not, is there a catching away or an engathering of sons and daughters? The question is, when does this happen? Amen. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18 says, For the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, Meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so, if you study, you'll find out, and some of you guys may have heard me make this reference. You know, after Paul received salvation. He actually went to them, and Galatians chapter 1 details this, that he went to the mountains of Arabia and was actually there for three years before coming back down. And in these very same mountain er, mountainous areas, Moses received the revelation to, uh, God actually told Moses, he said, go up. On top of the mountain, and God said, I'm going to come down in a thick cloud. i got the scripture references in your notes. I'm going to come down in a thick cloud. There's going to be a voice of a trumpet. There's going to be lightning. There's going to be thunder. And I'm going to come down and meet you. So when Moses went up, God came down. So does that not sound similar to what Paul is detailing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? Because in these very same mountains, he received a revelation. Hey, the saints are going up. And God is coming down to meet them. And we'll meet them in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And so the word rapture, people say, well, that's not in the Bible, but it's made reference to in Scripture. The Latin word for caught up is repair, which is where we get the word rapture from, right? And so the phrase caught up in the Greek is herpazo, which means rapture. It means to be transported from one place to another. So if you don't feel if you don't feel comfortable, call it the rapture. Call it the great catching away. Call it the end gathering. Call it the coming of the Lord. Call it something different if that makes you feel better. Because those phrases are actually listed and written down in the Word of God, but it is absolutely made reference to in Scripture. But I do want to make this point very clearly. The purpose of the rapture is to not escape tribulation, but to be resurrected and transformed into a pure image of the glory of God. Amen? So the point of being caught away is is not so well. The earth is going to hell in a handbasket, and there's a great falling away, and God's protecting me. No, the point of the coming of the great catching away and the church losing gravity and going up is for sort of the sole purpose of being transformed. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 51 through 57 says this, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now that word sleep there is figurative of death. He said we shall not all die, right? We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. This is what old timey saints called a new glorified body, right? Something different. What are the characteristics if you want to break it down of the resurrection of what a resurrection body? Think of Jesus. When Jesus was resurrected, he had no limitation of where he could go. When he went and visited his disciples after his resurrection, the Bible said he actually walked through a wall when he appeared to his disciples. He told Thomas, he said, thrust your hand into my side, right, and and touch me so that you may believe, right? And so he had the image of a body, but it did not have the physical limitations of where walls, where they could feel and touch things and where it could limit them to material or matter capacity. In other words, it was not that limitation. Jesus could not feel pain anymore, right? He he was not limited with the physical body. He had a physical appearance, but it was actually through a spiritual image. And so that is the purpose of that transformation and resurrection and what that looks like. That's why the Bible says that there is no more pain, there's no more death, there's no more sorrow. All things have passed away, Behold, all things have become new, right? Are you guys with me? And so that is the purpose, It's to be resurrected into a pure image of the... How many know we're created in the image of God? How many know sin entered into the world? When sin entered in, entered in curse came, right? Death, sickness, pain, all kinds of stuff, right? As a repercussion for sin, But by believing upon Jesus and surrendering our lives to Him, then all of a sudden we are changed by the glory of God. We start a new life when we surrender our life to Jesus. But I do believe that through through the coming of the Lord, the great catching away, whatever words you want to use, it's about being changed. This mortality must put on immortality, right? This corruption must put on incorruption, and there's a transformation there. So the question should not be, is there a rapture, but what is the purpose of the rapture and how does it fit in the end times? So the picture that left behind, for example, gets because I watched those, I watched those movies growing up, I read those books, all that stuff. The, it creates a panic and a fear, right? It creates a panic and a fear upon all the souls who've missed it. Which doesn't create a sense of urgency for winning souls because all that matters is that we make it in time. So, uh, so for example, you know when I was when I was a kid and and we were at home, uh, my, bro- my brother Josh he would get scared and afraid. Oh my gosh, he'd wake up from a nightmare or something. A lot of times he would go to my bedroom to see if I was still there because he said, "Well, if he's there, I've not missed it." I've not missed the rapture. How many of you done that growing up? Well, maybe I missed it. You woke up at a bad dream, you're scared out of your mind. Well, did, did I miss it? And you go run, you go run to the parents' room, you go run to the sanctified one in the home. You go say, Well, mama, pray mama's there, or the preacher so-and-so, dad is there. So if they're here, I'm good. Right? How many of you know you can't live salvation based off someone else's lifestyle? Yeah, right? But see how it creates fear? And so I don't believe that studying end times and studying the coming of the Lord should create fear because, again, God has not given us the spirit of fear, right? But a lot of times what the picture we painted in our mind is, oh, when we've got to be ready We don't care about anybody else as long as I'm ready when the trumpet sounds. Because we say it in the church a lot. Well, he'd come back anytime. He'd come back tonight. Well, if you really believed he'd come back tonight, how different would you live? And how different would your witness be? If you really, really, really believed it, would it not be different? He can truly come back anytime. He's God. Right? He can do whatever he wants to do because he's God. But the fact of the matter is, is if we truly believe it, how much different of a view is it to say, well, I'm just trying to get caught up because I'm trying to miss all these wars and stuff that's coming on there. I'm trying to miss coronavirus, <laughs> right? I'm trying to miss all this stuff. What's the difference in that versus saying, well, if I believe he's coming back, let me build him a throne to set on, Amen. right? What if the difference was, well, he's coming, so I'm going to build him, a, want to expand his kingdom. See, the difference was, see, pre-trib view, and, uh, that, that rapture view did not come until the 1800s. And a lot of that came around 1830. See, that wasn't taught in Jesus' day. It wasn't taught by early church fathers. Even, even the awakeners did not believe that. Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, none of those guys believed that. Their mindset was the disciples. Look at the book of Acts. What did they do? They said When they asked him, they said, when is your coming that you're going to build your kingdom in Israel? Jesus said, Don't worry about that. That's not for you to know. Just go and wait for the promise of the the Holy Spirit. Because when he gets in you, all of a sudden you want to be bold and you want to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Uh, Think about it. Matthew 24, 14. He said, go into all the earth and preach the gospel and then shall the end come. Look at the disciples' mindset. Their mindset was, let me go into all of the known world and preach the gospel. How different is that? Then the church today, well, he's coming. Don't know when. I'm going to be ready. But you know what? If it, We know there's a great falling away, so why why try? So churches, churches are going to stay empty. They're not going to be full. How can you believe in a great falling away, but also believe in a great in-time outpouring of revival? That is, that conflicts each other. That can't be so. That doesn't make any sense. You can't have the church falling away and then sons and daughters should prophesy, old men should dream dreams, and young men should see visions. You will have to have one or you won't have to have the other. They both can't happen at the same time as signs of his coming. Right? In fact, Jesus said, When when they asked him, said when should these signs when should all these things happen? He said, There's an abomination of desolation coming, so be on the lookout and be ready. Right, he said. Just be what he said. That's your sign. So, in other words, he's saying this this idea of wait, just a minute, uh, hell's going or the earth's going to hell in the handbasket. We need to get rid of that mindset and say, you know what? He's coming, but I want as much of God on earth right now. I don't have to wait for the rapture to have peace in my life, to have joy in my life, to have victory in my life. I can have it right now because His presence is in me. I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit and his spirit rests in me. Therefore, I don't have to wait to die to go to heaven. I can have heaven on earth because my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Right? Does any of that make any sense? Are you with me? Okay. So we need to so let me throw out this scenario as well concerning the rapture church, just to get you thinking. I want to ask a lot of questions to just get you thinking. So again, you may leave more confused than you came. You may have figured you thought you had this all figured out like i see eight years ago i thought i had this all figured out now i feel like i don't really know much and i'm starting over but so shall we ever be with the lord is the purpose for us to uh, ever be with the lord is that to mean to be in heaven forever or does that mean to be in the presence of god forever look at it like this is the purpose to join him with ten thousands of his saints as the Bible says in Jude, verse 14, to execute judgment on the ungodly and rule and reign on the earth as kings and priests. So when you really think about it, is the purpose uh, of, of Jesus catching us away, is the purpose was well, I can be in heaven forever, or is it to be in the presence of the Lord forever? Because if you study the Bible, we come back with him. He plants his kingdom on him. we come back. Is that not scripture, Amen. right? That's all confirmed So, so maybe the rapturing before tribulation or which I'm going to really detail that in just a minute in our view, or could it be later where it says when we catch your way and we're joining him with the 10,000 saints in heaven to to join him and solidify his kingdom because the Bible says the kingdoms of the earth are his kingdoms. So is it for the manifestation of his glory upon the whole earth? And for us to rule and reign with him as kings and priests. Just something to think about, right? So where does this seven years come from? It comes from Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, which can be a little bit confusing, but I'm going to break this down the best that I can. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. If you can pull that up, Jake, it'd be awesome. If not, you maybe pull it up on your phone or look at the Bible because you really need to look at this to really try it because this is, some really hard stuff to really break down at times. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people, your holy city, to finish the transgressions, to make an end of sin, to make an atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. When Daniel gives us prophecy, this is where we're about to detail this. This is where we get the seven-year tribulation period from. We get it. From these verses. There are other verses in scripture. I'll talk about in just a minute. But this is it. Right? And so. it's This 70 weeks. Is not a week of days. It's a week of years. So in other words. He's not talking about. Just the 70 weeks of days. He's actually talking about. 490 years. He's talking about a space. Of 490 years. I'm going to break this down for you guys. In just a minute. And so. So you are to know. And discern from the issuing of a decree. To restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That would be 69 of the 70 weeks, which would actually be 483 years, okay? It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince, who is to come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with the flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolations, or determined. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will... Okay, so let me let me break the... He said for one week, that is seven years, okay? That's where we get the week of years from, okay? Seven years. He'll make a covenant in the week, but in the middle of the week, halfway through, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes decisions, even unto a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Very confusing scriptures, but I'm going to try to break this down the best... Best we can. Okay, so Gabriel makes a decree that Jerusalem would be rebuilt until the Messiah would be seven weeks and 62 weeks, which again is 69 weeks, which is 483 years. In 457 B.C., Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, decreed that the Jews were free to return to their homeland, rebuild Jerusalem, and the temple. If we add 483 years to that date, we come to 27 A.D., Historians tell us that Jesus was born in 4 BC, which means that he was 30 years old in AD 27, which was the age that Jesus was baptized and entered into the ministry. So, the 69 of the 70 weeks, the 483 years, where we read about the Messiah coming and the rebuilding of Jerusalem and things, we see that in these in this time period of when the King of Persia gave the Jews access to go back into their homeland and rebuild the temple, and then it was fulfilled, and then all of a sudden you have Jesus coming on the scene at the end, and he has entered into the ministry at the age of, of, uh, of 30 years old. And so we so we have that there in Scripture. And actually, it is believe Jesus was born in 4 B.C., so that's why it's, he started there in A.D. 27. So after 69 weeks in Daniel nine twenty seven. The Bible says he will make a firm covenant for seven years, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. So, preterist view and futurist view of the book of Revelation, again, meaning that part of Revelation has been fulfilled in comparison to everything in Revelation from 4-1 on is a future event. Okay. Both, both all these views will agree that the first 69 weeks, of those 483 years, was, has already been fulfilled and was fulfilled in church history. believe that there's no debate, there's no issue. The problem is is that 70th week of that being fulfilled because those views are different so I'm going to break this down okay and you've got and you guys got it in your notes. The question is in verse 27 is who does the pronoun he refer to and that's where the discussion is okay so the future uh, futurist view, which is pre-trib mid-trib post-trib whatever that believe that future these things would be fulfilled believe that 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 there is a break between the 69th and the 70th week so there's a break and and of, of course with now, by now it's almost 2000 years okay so even though there wasn't a break in the first 69 weeks the futurist view believes the break is the 69th and 70th week nobody knows but they believe the trigger point is this prince that we read about in Scripture that, that futures believe is the Antichrist will go into the temple that has been rebuilt. And see, that's why a lot of Christians get excited about things going on in Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. It's not that they're getting excited about the Jews. They believe biblical prophecy is being fulfilled. So that's why people get excited, right? Because fact of the matter is that ought to make us mourn because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't die and resurrect just for the Gentiles. He did it for everybody. We should be more. We we should be mournful for a temple being rebuilt if they don't have the revelation of who Jesus is, yeah. right? Amen. So, but anyway, so they so they believe the antichrist will come, and this is actually derived from Revelation chapter eleven verse two. They believe the antichrist will come in a rebuilt temple. He will make a make a covenant with the Jews for three and a half for seven years, but halfway through, for forty two months, he will break. And, 42 months he'll break that covenant and then he will overrule, desecrate the temple and over similar to the way Antiochus Epiphanes did in in the Grecian time as well as Emperor Nero did in his time. But they believe that the Antichrist will come desecrate the temple and all this stuff. And so that's where you build this whole theory on the seven years and what that represents. Okay. Here's what a partial preterist view looks at that as. Okay. They look at it as the he actually doesn't refer to the Antichrist, but it actually refers to Jesus. Okay? And so they believe that Jesus actually fulfilled, fulfilled this scripture, that the seventy weeks has already been fulfilled, and that we're not looking for seven years, because when Jesus came, three and a half years into his ministry, or okay, halfway through three and a half years, he steps into uh, he stepped into his ministry for three and a half years. He dies and resurrects. When Jesus dies and resurrects, there's no more need for grain offerings. There's no more need for uh, any of these sacrifices and grain offerings. He's saying there's no more need of it because he fulfilled it. And so that's where that view is. And so they say no break in between the 69th and 70th week, between 483 and 490 years. They say this is all falling together. Jesus fulfilled that. And then all of a sudden, okay, he fulfills that. He dies and resurrects and all that stuff. is. Those offerings are no longer necessary. And then you have the discussion of an abomination of desolation. Of course, Jesus is not necessarily the author of that, but he begins to prophesy that and speak that in Matthew 24. This is written down later in your notes. But it says in Scripture, because we quote Matthew 24 with the end times. We quote saying, well... uh, earthquakes in diverse places, wars and rumors of wars, uh, and all this other stuff. But if you read in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, it states that all this stuff would be fulfilled in that generation. We we don't talk about that. We actually overlook that verse. Because if Jesus said it's going to be fulfilled in that generation, then why are we trying to apply it to now? Yeah. Okay? So you get what... Now do you get why I'm changing my... why? really been changing my tune a little bit because this is really what got got me thinking because it's, because if he said, all these things will be fulfilled in that generation and 43 years later, you have the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the abomination, desolation, the temple destroyed and all this stuff and we'll talk and we'll detail some stuff that happened in that day that is absolutely mind-blowing. But when you begin to look at that, how much different does that change? Does that kind of open your mind? to think because that stuff... I never heard taught growing up. I always said, well, there's a break down the road. And maybe that's true. I'm not going to rule it out. But when I say, what if the he that makes the cut, what if that is Jesus and not this guy? The Antichrist is actually mentioned four times in Scripture. The Antichrist, the word Antichrist is not mentioned in the book of Revelation. It's only mentioned in 1 John, right? In the book, in the letter of 1 John. See, it's mentioned four times. And, what do, and every time you see that word mentioned, it's talking about a spirit of Antichrist that is denying who the Father and the Son are. It's talking about false teachings and false prophets in that generation. So how different is it to say, well, maybe we need to step back a little bit and begin to ask ourselves questions and look at stuff and say, listen, he said the spirit of Antichrist was in operation in that generation because it denied the Father and it denied who Jesus is. So it actually kind of gets you thinking a little bit in regards to that. So in other words, again, I probably have just rough I mean, because we've I've had this mindset settled for years and I had this all figured out, but when I begin to look at this other perspective, I begin to say, man, this actually makes sense. Because we use biblical prophecy and we're afraid to talk about it because it may create fear. But what if some of this stuff has already been fulfilled and we're not having to look for it? Get you thinking, right? Okay, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there be a fallen away first, and that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Again, I asked this earlier, but if we believe that there's a if the great falling away was not for that generation, but for a future generation, okay, if we say that, then how can we believe for an end-time harvest of revival? You know, even the the book of Revelation, if you tell later, talks about angels grabbing their sickle and reaping in the book of Revelation. How can we talk about an end-time harvest, right? How can we believe that and then say, well, there's a great falling away too. It collides. It doesn't make any sense, okay? So, we, so it's about just stepping back and kind of looking at stuff again. The pre-trib rapture view and all this stuff did not come to pass and was not discussed until 1830, until in the 1800s. Right? And, and and it was really pushed even in nineteen oh nine with the Schofield Reference Bible, who pushed a more pessimistic view. But a lot of these guys went through World War One, World War Two, and the Great Depression. The only hope they had was somehow getting to heaven. And the problem is is we keep that mindset in the church. And so we don't have we actually can have stuff to look forward to right now. Let me let me just shake you a little. If we believe for an end time harvest, if we preach the gospel and believe his kingdom is coming and we believe his kingdom is also within us and we believe we can expand his kingdom on earth now and we can heal people, we can see people saved, we can see people delivered, then that should get us excited. Yeah. So we don't have to wait to die or wait and say, well, I'm just waiting for that creature to wait so I can say bye to everybody. What about we just have the mindset of we are ushering in his coming versus I'm waiting him to escape. From the mess that's going on in the earth, wow. right? Do you see the change of view of how that affects evangelism and missions? Because a church that is waiting, that is just looking for an escape, doesn't have the mindset of let's go to the nations and let's win as many souls as we can. Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? That's where that's what what really startled me. But anyway, Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two verses six through seven says, and you know who restrained? This is one of the most confusing. Daniel 9, 24-27 20, through 27 is a very confusing scripture, but this is also is too. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. The Passion Translation says, separated from out of the midst. I think it's very interesting to talk about who the restrainer is. Because we use this scripture, but because this scripture is used to talk about who is the restrainer. Who is restraining this mystery of lawlessness going into a rampage and being revealed? Of course, again, you're looking at, are we talking about a Roman Empire of that generation? Are we talking about a future antichrist that's coming? So that's been the debate. That's been the question. Okay? And so um, that he restrains could potentially be the Holy Spirit in the sense of restraining him, meaning that he cannot fully operate into that authority unless the Spirit of God allows him to do so. How many know God is still in charge? How many know God is still on his throne? God can limit stuff. God can heal you. How many know God can protect you from plagues? How many know, how many, you read those stories of, of how a tornado sweeps, I read this story one time, where a tornado swept through, I, it was either in Kansas or something like that, destroyed the home, but it destru- the only place that was standing in that home was the woman's prayer closet, or a Bible sitting in a post somewhere, something, you know what I'm saying? It's like, whoa, God protected us, but look at that home. God protects that designated So how do know God protects us and God keeps us? So we know the Holy Spirit, even with all turmoil that could go on, God can keep us safe from all harm and evil, right? So we know God can do that. I do not believe that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit in the sense of Him being removed from the earth. There is absolutely 1,000% no scriptural evidence that says the Holy Spirit leaves the earth. None. Whatsoever. Jesus said... I will leave you a comforter that which is the Holy Spirit that will be with you when I'm gone. Why is that? Because it takes the Holy Spirit to convict people. It takes the Holy Spirit to bring people to repentance. It takes the gifts of the Holy Spirit to see people healed and delivered and discern needs and prophecy and speak. So if you take the Holy Spirit out of the picture, nobody's getting saved. You will never read in Scripture where God stops saving people. That's outside of the grace and nature of God. God is gracious and merciful. That's outside of his nature. So this picture we paint that says, well, we got to get ready now, get rapture ready now, because once that happens, nobody else is getting saved in the earth. That's unbiblical. Because in fact, you read about the martyrs in the book of Revelation. If that was the case, there would be no martyrs in Revelation dying for the cause of Christ. There would be none. How can you have martyrs if nobody's getting saved? Right? So it said, watch and pray. Be ready for his coming. Right? But we also never read where God stops saving people because that's outside of the nature of the kingdom of God. It's outside of the nature of the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? Amen. Probably, again, you may leave more confused than you started tonight. <laughs> and if you do, I'm sorry. But in, the, in a futurist view, the mystery of lawlessness is the Antichrist who comes and is restrained until the church is taken out of the way or, or the Holy Spirit. But in this case, futurists may believe the church. When the church is caught up and leaves, then the antichrist can go on his rampage, and so that, that is a futurist view. But I also want to make mention too: Second Thessalonians two the, never speaks or reveals anything concerning the rapture of the church. Never doesn't mention it at all in Second Thessalonians chapter two. Mentions nothing about it. In her preterist view, the man of lawlessness would actually be Nero, the Roman Empire, and we'll discuss that more in depth in weeks to come. Why they believe that? Again, maybe that's right maybe that's wrong, right? After studying and seeing every angle of it, I leaned more towards that, but I'm not going to rule it out because there could be dual fulfillment in prophecy and stuff of that nature. But once you realize and study history of what happened in Rome with the Jews, you'll start thinking a little bit because it was some crazy stuff that happened. Here was the main verse that got me with a pre-trib rapture view. That got me. And again, I, grew, I believed it all my life. I've grown up all my life. This was the verse that really startled me about six months to a year ago. John 17, 15 says, I pray that you would take them out of the world, but not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from evil. If Jesus, who is the Son of God and knows the will of the Father, if he believes and knows he's coming back, say the, the great catching away and things, believes that, then why would he pray for his disciples? Don't take them out of the world. That means he knows something, right? He knows they're getting caught up. He knows they're leaving. He knows that time is coming for him to say that in his prayer. But he said, not that you would take them out of the world, but keep them from evil. Why would Jesus pray that? Because we look at the escape, because a lot of people look at pre view, they call it escapism because they say, well, it's people just trying to escape what's going on in the earth. But the question is, and again, this is not throwing rapture out of the door. Jesus is coming back. We're going to be caught up one day. That is in Scripture. That is biblical. That's Bible. But if the prayer was this, what if, what if the escape was God keep them from evil versus take them out of the world? Because if they stay in the world, but they're kept from evil, then they can still minister to lost selves. Right? They can still. You take the early church out Who's preaching? Who's healing? Who's working miracles? Where's Paul at? Where's Peter at? Where's John at? If they're in heaven and they're all caught up and that's their escape, then who is getting saved? Nobody. How beautiful are the feet of the preach the gospel, Right? Amen. So maybe the escape was God keep them safe in the midst. Just like Israel in Egypt. When the place came on Egypt, Israel was safe. They put the blood on the doorposts and death passed by on the firstborn and God kept them safe. Right? God protected them. In the same way, God can protect you. That's why we're not to live in fear. Amen. Hallelujah. Luke 21, 32-36. Go over this and we'll open the floor for questions. But it says, Ver now saying, This generation not pass, so all be fulfilled. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Matthew twenty four twenty paints the picture what the escape is. It wasn't losing gravity, but it was about fleeing from tribulation that was coming upon the Jewish people. That's why he told them when these things come, he said, flee to the mountains. Run to the mountains. Run to Appalachia. Run. Run to it. Leave New York. Leave Lexington. Come to the Appalachian. No, I'm just kidding. Right? Leave the city. Right? No. He's saying flee. He, that's why he said pray that your flight's not in winter or, or or something of that nature, right? Because he said pray it's a good weather for you guys that when you're running for your life that, <laughs> that you flee and hide in the mountains, right? I believe he was talking to the Jewish people of that generation. The escape was protection. The escape was safety. In the events of Matthew 24 and Luke 21, that was to be fulfilled in that generation. How do you define a generation? If you say this generation will encounter revival. What do you mean by that? Do you mean a church age of 2,000 years? Or do you mean, well, if my generation, maybe 20 years, maybe 40 years, right? So there's three generations, grandparents, parents, children, right? So if we're talking about this generation, then that means that was for that generation. So why are we looking? Because when we start painting this picture, oh, there's, there's a tornado hit Nashville. That was the will of God because, because of end times. That's stupid. Right? If Jesus rebuked the storm and it was God's will to send the storm, then Jesus would be rebuking the Father. And that doesn't make any sense. So maybe the tornado wasn't God's will. We got to quit thinking everything that happens in life is God's will. Amen? Got to stop thinking that. The enemy is out there, sin is in the world, right? There might be more to it than meets eye. We can't say that. How do you find comfort and say, well, it was God's will for your child to die from cancer? What? What well, comfort that? Right? It's God's will for you to lose your home. And that's, what? Are you kidding me? That ain't God. That ain't love. I don't know about you, but that don't show Father's love to me. But, right? Amen. And so... Um, Origin of Alexandria states that for it was, I believe, 42 years from the time when they crucified Jesus to the destruction of Jerusalem. There you see an example of what a generation could very well be. History can repeat itself, but if the abomination and desolation that Jesus warned about was fulfilled in that generation, then we should not possess a pessimistic eschatology a panic and fear concerning trouble coming to the world, but our mindset should be, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Right? Now, I'm not saying things aren't going to happen in the earth. Problems happen. Turn on the news. You'll freak out, right? You'll buy extra toilet paper and hand sanitizer, right? Freak you out, scare you out of your mind, right? You're plenty. But can I tell you, God is not coming back because the earth is in turmoil. He's coming back for a bride. He's coming but for a church that's devoted. He's coming for a church that's hungry. He's coming for a John the Baptist generation that's ushering in a Jesus movement. He's coming back for people that are preaching the gospel, women's souls, making a difference. Amen? That's the difference in mindset. And that's the difference in views. Amen? Mm